Does God exist? Who is Jesus? What is salvation? What is the church? Those are the first four questions that I've used to map the religious landscape. Before I'm through today, I'll introduce a fifth. My answers drawn from the Bible have led us from monotheism to Christianity to Protestantism. From its outset, there were four denominational families in the Protestant movement, and last time I compared the Lutheran and Anabaptist views. Today, we'll learn more about Anglicanism, but we'll focus in on the Presbyterian and Reformed views as I share excerpts from my interview with a Reformed Theological Seminary professor. My name is Brian Craddock, and this is Finding Your Way in the Religious Maze. When my wife and I moved to Michigan with our newborn son 21 years ago, we left behind both of our families in Southern California. So one of our primary concerns became finding affordable ways for our son and then our daughters when they were born to see their grandparents out west. When our children were young enough to sit on our laps, our best option was to fly. But once we had to pay for four or five plane tickets, that became too expensive. So I had the brilliant idea of taking the train. Early one summer morning, we boarded Amtrak's Wolverine line in Kalamazoo and transferred to the Southwest Chief in Chicago. We were all having a great time watching the scenery roll by until we reached the Mississippi River. Intense thunderstorms were causing flooding. The train slowed to a crawl as we passed houses and fields under several inches of water, but we kept on moving down the rails. We crossed the river as the sun was setting and tried to sleep as best we could with the rocking motion and the clickety-clack of the tracks. But in the middle of the night, the train stopped. The storms had worsened to the point that the rails were impassable somewhere down the line. It wasn't like being in a plane that could climb to a higher altitude or, or in a car that can take a detour. Trains only follow the tracks. There was no other choice. Since we couldn't go forward or back, we were stuck in Marceline, Missouri. So Amtrak sent buses to pick us up and to take us by a different route, ahead to Kansas City, where we waited until the train coming from out west arrived. We eventually arrived in Los Angeles, but it was a painfully long trip, and we've been hesitant to ever take a chance of getting stuck on the rails again. Some people have similar feelings about the Calvinist views taught by confessional Presbyterian and Reformed churches, and also some Anglicans throughout history. Their belief in predestination can seem fatalistic. Has God already decided where I'll spend eternity? If he sovereignly controls everything, are we like robots passing through life on a track? When the storms of life come, is there any escape? Must suffering simply be accepted as the will of God? Do I have any choice? To explore these issues, I arranged a video chat with Dr. Greg Salazar, assistant professor of historical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The seminary is linked with two denominations, the Heritage Reformed Congregations and the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Both groups trace their lineage back to the Netherlands. But Dr. Salazar is a member of the Presbyterian Church of America, which ties back historically to the Church of Scotland. He was also previously a part of a Reformed Baptist Church and a Reformed Anglican Church but he was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. So his personal story covers quite a bit of territory in the religious maze. You can watch my full interview with him on the Finding Your Way in the Religious Maze YouTube channel. You'll find a link to that video in the notes for this episode. Dr. Salazar says that his journey began at a youth summer camp hosted by Young Life, an evangelical parachurch organization. He told me, I heard the gospel 
clearly preached. Um, I heard Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And uh, the Holy Spirit took that word, applied it to my heart. And the impression I had after that talk was that no one was good enough to merit uh, eternal life, to get to God, and that I was going to hell. And so I actually asked my young life leader, uh, am I going to hell? And he said, yes. I said, are we all uh, going to hell? And he meant, I think what he knew I meant there was, you know, kind of everybody who doesn't know Christ. And he said, yes. And he told me uh, the gospel. He told me about Jesus and his death on the cross. And I remember hearing this and it was, you know, I'd grown up in the, in the church, it's like I was hearing things for the first time uh, that maybe I had heard before, but possibly, I, you know, had just never, uh, yeah, just never come home. So anyways, um, that week I made a profession of faith in Christ. I've thrown a lot of theological terms at you already, so let me review some of the territory we've already covered. After a thousand years of existence, Christianity divided into the Orthodox Church in the East and the Catholic Church in the West. 500 years later, some Catholics tried to reform the Church, but they ended up splitting off into the Protestant movement. Most Protestants looked to Scripture as the authority and taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Aside from these principles, however, each denominational family was forced to determine how much of Catholic belief and practice they would keep. Their different approaches become apparent in how they respond to the question, what is the church? Or we could ask, who is saved and how does it happen? Since King Henry VIII assumed leadership of the Anglican Church when it broke from Rome, the nation and the church became synonymous to some degree. The church included all the subjects of the king, all the citizens and their official beliefs changed depending to some degree upon who was on the throne. This created much turmoil until there was some degree of toleration for the existence of other churches in the land. So to this day, there's a wide spectrum of beliefs within Anglicanism. Some remain very close to Catholicism, while others embrace Reformed theology. I'll say more about that later. In Germany, Martin Luther taught that people could maintain whatever traditions are not forbidden in Scripture. So Lutherans reject the Catholic ideas of purgatory and the treasury of merit, but they still hold that the sacraments dispense saving grace. They say that infants receive faith and forgiveness through baptism. So you could say they view the church as everyone who is baptized. Anabaptists, on the other hand, move the farthest away from Catholicism. They rejected infant baptism entirely, teaching that personal understanding and belief must come before baptism. They also said that baptism and communion are symbolic acts rather than means of grace. So they view the church as those who are believers. These views were so radical at the time that they faced persecution from both Catholics and other Protestants. To understand the Presbyterian and Reformed view of the church then, we need to start with John Calvin. He was born in France in 1509 and began studying to become a Catholic priest at the age of 14. But at his father's urging, he switched to studying law. During that time, a friend taught him to read the Greek New Testament, and he was exposed to the Reformation ideas about salvation. He later wrote, 
God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. As the battle between Luther and the Catholic Church was heating up, some people in France were making waves. In 1528, for instance, someone decapitated a statue of the Virgin Mary in Paris. The Pope responded by insisting that the French king stamp out what he called the Lutheran heresy. Tension continued to grow until in 1534, signs or placards were posted in several French cities that blasted the Catholic Mass as idolatrous. Now, Calvin did not approve of such tactics, but he agreed with the theology behind them, and his views were widely known. So he ended up fleeing to Switzerland, and within a few years wrote his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, a careful explanation and defense of Protestant beliefs addressed to the King of France. Calvin ended up staying in Switzerland. He served as a pastor in Geneva for 23 years. There he preached several times a week, working verse by verse through 49 of the books of the Bible. His insights were published in commentaries that are now available free online. He also continued to expand his institutes and write tracts and letters. So Calvin's writings began to exert significant influence throughout Europe and beyond. People came to Geneva to learn from it and then carried his ideas elsewhere. John Knox, the founder of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, studied with Calvin. So too did Guy de Bray from the Netherlands, who ended up writing the Belgic Confession. Zacharias Ursinus, who was from Poland, studied in Germany with Luther's colleague Philip Melanchthon, and then came to Geneva to study with Calvin. He was the principal author of the Heidelberg Catechism. These two documents, along with another known as the Canons of Dort, were adopted as the confessional basis for the Dutch Reformed churches. So it makes sense to group both Reformed and Presbyterian denominations together as one family. According to a 2014 study from the Pew Research Center, 2.5% of the people in the United States would identify with these denominations. But some Baptist and non-denominational churches have also been heavily influenced by Calvinism. In fact, there's been a resurgence of Calvinism over the past 50 years. But what is the Calvinist view of the church? Remember, in Anglicanism, it was originally the subjects of the king, the citizens. In Lutheranism, those who were baptized. And from a Baptist or Anabaptist view, those who believe. But in line with Calvin's emphasis on the sovereignty of God, I think we should say that Calvinism sees the church as those who are chosen by God. And that view then leads to three different applications. First, Calvinism applies the idea of being chosen by God to the salvation of individuals. As I've mentioned, one of the places where this theology took root was in the Netherlands with the Dutch Reformed Church. Calvin died in 1564, but some people, following a man named Arminius, challenged Calvin's ideas in 1610. I'll say more about their views next time. But in response to Arminianism, Reformed church leaders from the Netherlands and other countries gathered in the city of Dordrecht to clarify their position in five points that they called the Canons of Dort. At some point in the last century or so, someone created a fitting English acronym to remember those Dutch Reformed points. TULIP, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. Dr. Salazar explains the five points by saying this. So total depravity, um, so Reformed folks believe that um, every single person who is uh, alive today is born in original sin. 
that we are born in a state in which we are totally depraved. Um, as, as Augustine famously articulated, um, we are unable uh, to not sin. So he has this, he has this fascinating, what, what's called, been called the fourfold state that in Adam, Adam and Eve were born into um, what he called passe pecare. Uh, they were able to sin. Uh, but fall, after the fall, they were non passe, non pecare. So they were not able to not sin. And he goes on to say um, that in Christ, it is possible for passe, non pecare. It's possible to not sin. But one day in glory, it will be non passe, pecare. It will be not possible to sin. So thinking about that, those kind of that fourfold state um, prior to believing in Christ. Uh, it is non passe, non pecare. It is not possible to not sin. Um, that we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet, um, unconditional election, God has chosen from the foundation of the world to elect some in Christ, as Ephesians 1 4. Um, he is, uh, according to his uh, plan and um, his the mysterious plan uh, that was hidden long long ago. Um, he has chosen to save some and and to not save others, um, and that that's what the Bible talks about in Romans nine with election, um, limited atonement, uh, meaning that if this is true that God has elected uh, some for salvation, the Bible also testifies that um, that that Jesus's blood only atones for those whose sins he died for. Um, so it's not as though you can have an uneffectual atonement saying that Jesus died for everyone, but it's only for those who believe who become, who are, who are saved. Um, we would say, well, how does that, how does that square with, the effectual atonement of Christ's blood. Um, how does that? How does how does that map out with the will of God? Um, so limited atonement, irresistible grace that God, whoever He calls, uh, they come. <laughs> it's not a general call, uh, meaning you know, like the pastor who gives a call on in a sermon to come to Christ to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a general call, but God's specific call in a person's life is irresistible. Um, those who he calls will come. Um, and then perseverance of the saints. Um, all of those who are truly believers will persevere to the end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Second, the Reformed and Presbyterian churches apply the idea of being chosen by God to the family and the church as the people of God. They are a chosen people. The Old Testament tells us that out of all the people throughout the earth, God chose to establish a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He promised to bless them and commanded that all their male descendants be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. In time, he gave them his law. He called them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. But as we saw a few weeks ago, 1 Peter 2.9 applies these same terms to the church. So this idea of a covenant people shapes the Reformed and Presbyterian view 
of baptism. Dr. Salazar explains it this way. Now, this is something that distinguishes us from, say, our even our Reformed Baptist brothers. Uh, we believe that baptism is for believers and their children. Um, and that's based on uh, the continuity that we see between the Old Testament and um, circumcision in the Old Testament, what the Bible uh, teaches in the New Testament about that continuity. Um, we also see throughout the New Testament that there's believers who are baptized with their children, a number of different instances where uh, that is the case. And so we would say that uh, is the, first of all, the, the sacraments are signs and seals of an inward reality. So uh, that the outward sign of baptism uh, signifies and is a sign of something that inwardly takes, we believe inwardly takes place. Now, what is that? We would say that baptism is, is membership into the covenant community. And so who are members of the covenant community? Namely the church. Um, this, the, this is believers and their children. Now, we would still say that a baptized believer needs to um, come to a full and public profession of faith, that they make their baptism, um, uh, they affirm their baptism uh, with a full profession of faith. We would say uh, that there's still the, the need for regeneration, uh, the need for faith, uh, the need for true conversion. Um, just because you're a child of a believer does not mean that um, that you are going to be saved. God's ordinary way is that he saves believers and their children. However, um, and God has covenant, truly covenanted himself with our, with our children, with the children of believers. Um, however, um, there is no guarantee and God works according to his sovereign plan. Finally, Calvinism applies the idea of being chosen by God to leadership in the church. Catholicism taught that authority in the church was passed down through a line of succession that began with the apostles and continued through the pope and then down through bishops to priests. The Anglican church and the Lutheran church maintained some of that basic structure taking what's called an episcopal approach to church government. The term episcopal comes from the Greek word episkopos. So the King James Bible produced by Anglicans translated the word as bishop. A more literal rendering of the word episkopos is overseer, and the New Testament seems to indicate that each local church was led by a group of them. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul spoke to a group of leaders from the city of Ephesus, and he said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, earlier in the chapter, in verse 17, these same men are called presbyteroi, or elders, that's the word from which we get the name Presbyterian. Paul charged these men to care for the flock, the work of a shepherd, a pastor. So we could say that he used these concepts, overseer, elder, and pastor, interchangeably. This insight led Reformed and Presbyterian churches to teach that congregations should be led by a group recognized as chosen by God, raised up by the Spirit. Reformed churches and Presbyterian churches use some different terminology to talk about leadership, but the basic ideas are the same. 
Dr. Salazar describes the Presbyterian church form of government by saying, We, we really see the, the mission and the, what they would call the power of the keys um, being um, centered in the presbyters who are, um, who are those who have been given the stewardship of overseeing the local church congregations, but then also Acts 15, gather in um, synods, presbyteries. So there's, we would very much see Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. We see a gathering together of church leaders, uh, making decisions on behalf of um, the local churches. And then we would have also general assembly as well. Um, so in, in Presbyterianism, the General Assembly for America, uh, for the United States, and then you would have individual presbyteries, and those presbyteries have uh, presbytery meetings, and then local congregations, which are governed by um, elders or presbyters, that's the Greek word representing elders, uh, and deacons um, who have an office, not of rule, but of service um, within the local church. So the idea of God's sovereign choice is foundational to the Calvinist theology of confessional Reformed and Presbyterian churches. It shapes their view of how individual people are saved. It's reflected in their understanding of baptism and what it means for a child to be born into a believing family. And it influences their approach to the organization, authority, and leadership of the church. But as I mentioned last time, all four Protestant denominational families have been influenced by movements that came along after the Reformation. So before I respond to Calvinism, I think it will help to introduce my next key theological question. My first four questions have presented us with a simple set of options, a two-dimensional maze. But questions five and six add extra layers on top that spread over all the Protestant denominations. They even reach beyond Protestantism to the other branches of Christianity and sometimes the other world religions. The questions thus far have given us the ground level. But the remaining questions explain why one Reformed or Presbyterian denomination may hold very different views from another Reformed or Presbyterian denomination. Another way to think about these movements is like one of those mazes where you tilt the whole thing to guide a marble through. There could be multiple marbles in different parts of the maze, but when you tilt it, they all roll in the same direction. Where they end up depends on whether there's anything to hold them back. That's how these movements work. They tilt the floor under everyone. Sometimes they affect whole denominations. Sometimes they produce new ones. Sometimes they influence a local congregation to change in some way or even just a single individual person. So my fifth key theological question is where is assurance found? In other words, how can I know whether I'll spend eternity in heaven? What are the signs of spiritual life and growth? Throughout history, various movements have tilted the maze in one of four directions. People seek assurance in right worship, right belief, right behavior, or right experience. We heard that emphasis on right worship from Catholicism. Salvation is through the church and the sacraments. To whatever degree you can have assurance, Catholicism says that it is found through consistent attendance and participation. There are still traces of that way of thinking in Lutheranism. 
We'll talk about movements that lean heavily toward right behavior and right experience over the next two weeks. But for now, we need to see that the Reformation was driven by an emphasis on right belief. Thanks to the development of the printing press, there was an explosion of knowledge. Common people without any priestly training gained access to books and began learning to read. The Bible was translated into common languages. Theological books began to multiply. But some reformers were scared by the radical views that were developing. So they responded by creating confessions as standards for right belief and catechisms to teach those beliefs to people and their children. To some degree, spiritual life and growth began to be measured by your knowledge of these beliefs. Assurance of salvation was linked to understanding the truth. We hear this emphasis from Dr. Salazar. When I asked him about assurance, he told me this. Your only hope of assurance of salvation, this is what the Puritan said, is in the fact that God is true to his promises. Right? So if we see, if we see for example, in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we see that salvation and assurance is founded on the, on the sure promises of God first and foremost. Now, I agree with Dr. Salazar. Knowledge of God's word is necessary to be saved, and it's the foundation for our assurance. In fact, if you listen to the full interview with him, you'll find that he goes on to give a very helpful perspective on how the four places people look for assurance should work together. Furthermore, I think Calvinism and these historic confessions are of great value. I've been deeply influenced by the writings of confessional Presbyterians like R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson, John Murray, and James Montgomery Boyce. I've also learned much from Dutch Reformed scholars like Cornelius Van Til and William Hendrickson. But since I moved to West Michigan, I've interacted with a lot of people who have grown up in confessional Reformed churches. And those conversations in my study of Scripture compel me to point out three pitfalls to avoid in Calvinist theology. The first pitfall is authority without inquiry. Confessionalism and Calvinist theology can create an atmosphere where questions are discouraged. Everything's locked down and buttoned up. What right do you have to question the theological conclusions of the great reformers, or even the decisions of elders who've been raised up by the Spirit of God? Of course, this attitude can develop in any movement. We hear it in the Orthodox view of tradition and the Catholic view of the Pope. And we'll hear it from other groups as well, but the Calvinistic emphasis on submission to a sovereign God gives it a particular edge. Many years ago, I had a conversation with a young man from a confessional reformed church and he was talking about the three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. He spoke with reverence and passion, extolling their great beauty and richness. He was gushing. I think that attitude is common among those who appreciate the confessions. For the Presbyterians, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith that was written in 1646. But I cannot help but wonder if their love for those documents might eclipse their love for Scripture sometimes. Now, the psalmist models that approach to the scripture in Psalm 119. It's the word of God. We should delight in it and find joy in it. We need to remember that the Bible alone carries that power and authority. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you're not careful, a confession become a lens that colors your interpretation of the Bible. I think we see this in the Presbyterian and Reformed view of infant baptism. Even though Acts 16 mentions two households being baptized, that's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, and there's no indication that infants were involved. Instead, we saw last week that those passages stress understanding, repentance, and faith as prerequisites of baptism. The only passage that could possibly support baptism as a replacement for Old Testament circumcision is Colossians 2, 11 and 12. But it also stresses personal faith. Paul says, In him, that's Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. As the word of God, Scripture is our ultimate authority. Whether writing theological confessions or leading a local church, the lingering effects of total depravity in the life of a believer can lead godly, well-intentioned people to make honest mistakes. It's hard to overcome our cultural assumptions. So every believer should check all teaching by a careful reading of Scripture. The second pitfall to avoid in Calvinism is sovereignty without responsibility. Going back to my story that I began with, trains run on two parallel rails. When you look into the distance, they seem to come together at a point. But that impression is created by the limits of our vision. In reality, they just keep going. When we read the Bible, we find two rails, divine sovereignty and human responsibility that run side by side. John 6.44, for instance, tells us that Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But then in verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. God is sovereign over all things, but at the same time, he invites people to believe and holds them fully responsible for the choices they make. With the limits of our human reason, we cannot see how both ideas can be true. We think that they must somehow come together so that one wins out. We're not comfortable leaving it a mystery, we want to pin it down and say that it's either all God's choice or all a person's choice. We'll talk about those who emphasize man's choice next week. As the tulip acrostic shows, Calvinists focus on God's choice. Now, I think there's good biblical support for the five points of Calvinism, particularly when we look at the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians. But I think the emphasis of God's choice leads some people to wrongly minimize our responsibility to believe, to pray, and to preach the gospel. A woman from a staunch Reformed background told me that for many years she doubted whether she could ever know if she was chosen by God. Sadly, she found no comfort or assurance in the gospel promise of salvation. I've heard others that were so wrapped up in thinking about predestination that they thought it was wrong to pray for someone to be saved. Then there's the story of William Carey. When he announced his plans to go to India as a missionary in the late 1700s, an old minister said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Now, I think most Calvinists would agree that these are very distorted views. 
but they illustrate the way some people respond to teaching about God's sovereignty. They feel stuck on the tracks, when in reality those rails enable us to move through life with confidence in our loving, wise, almighty God. We make real choices in life. We're not robots. But the sovereignty of God assures us that even the worst storms of life cannot stop His perfect plan. A third pitfall to avoid with Calvinism is head without heart. Whenever the maze tilts toward knowledge and right belief, it's possible to wind up with a lifeless orthodoxy. We picture Calvinists, particularly Puritans, as somber and intellectual with very little joy or passion. The frozen chosen. We pick up that impression from historical accounts we hear of individuals like Jonathan Edwards. And honestly, the portraits of him don't help with that impression. But the Puritan movement began in the Anglican Church as an effort to remove unbiblical traditions and to bring true spiritual revival to people's hearts. Dr. Salazar explained this background when I asked him about why the school where he teaches is called Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. Listen to how he describes their approach to preaching. The preaching that is most effective and that God blesses is a preaching to the heart um, and that the heart is the seat of the affections of our loves. And the Puritans believe that as the heart goes, so the man goes. And so we pre we stress the importance of preaching to the heart and the practical uh, changes in our will and our lives that is to result from, from clear preaching. So right belief is the foundation of assurance, but true spiritual growth goes beyond intellect. The Puritans emphasized the heart, while many people were growing cold in their orthodoxy. We find this focus taught in passages like 2 Peter 1, 5-7, which says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. On its own, knowledge puffs us up and makes us arrogant. But the more we truly understand the sovereign grace of God, the more humble, loving, and gracious we should become. So to sum up, Calvinism views the church as those chosen by God, and it generally points people to find assurance in right belief as articulated by the historic confessions. I think there's good biblical support for God's choice of individuals to salvation, as described in the five points of the tulip acrostic. But we must not lose sight of human responsibility. In my opinion, the biblical idea of the church as a chosen covenant people does not justify the practice of infant baptism as a replacement for circumcision. Then it seems clear that local churches in the New Testament were led by groups of elders raised up by God. But that does not mean that such men are infallible or above question, even those who wrote the confessions. We all must learn the Bible and examine all teaching by it, remembering that as foundational as such knowledge is, God's truth must transform our hearts. So what's your response to all of this? We've covered a lot. Perhaps much of it is entirely new to you. But don't lose sight of the fact that God invites you to respond to the message of His sovereign grace. The Christian faith is more than knowledge. Have you personally received Christ as your Lord and Savior? 
If you want to learn more about the sovereign plan of God for salvation, I encourage you to spend some time reading the first chapter of Paul's New Testament letter to the Ephesians. If you're a Christian, do you need to renew your trust in God's sovereignty? Do you need to look again to the promises of the gospel or to remind yourself that he works all things together for good? Or maybe you have a friend who just needs encouragement to trust God. May God transform our hearts. For a transcript of this episode, visit my website, religiousmaze.org. There, you'll find other helpful resources for understanding the Bible. You might want to check out my Bible teaching ebook titled Count Your Blessings. It's a verse by verse study of Ephesians 1 that shows the incredible blessings of God's sovereign grace. If you subscribe to my email update, you can download it for free. Just find the link in the episode notes. Use the contact page on my website to let me know your thoughts. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, share it on social media, and rate it on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Finding Your Way in the Religious Maze.